everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Unknown. I'm your host, Peyton, and today we have a super exciting story on the Sodder children. So we're kind of keeping that vibe from last week's um, Pollock Sisters episode, which I hope that you enjoyed. Um, But I wanted to, before we get into it, I wanted to talk about something that I heard that was really interesting today. So I was listening to Morbid, which is another true crime podcast, and I was listening to their latest episode, which was, I believe, Listener Tales 51. And the one of the tales was talking about crime scene cleanup. And I had no idea that this was a thing. But you actually have to call in the crime scene cleanup on your own and pay them out of your own money. I had no idea. I had always, I'd always thought that whenever the police or investigators came in and gathered the evidence, that the crime scene cleanup just came in right after them and just cleaned everything up. But it turns out this isn't the case. Apparently, you have to call your own crime scene cleanup and pay out of your own pocket. And what I've heard is it's very expensive. So I thought this was something really interesting, and I thought it would be kind of cool to share it with you guys. um, And maybe you learned something new, too, as well. Okay, so let's get into the episode. So the Sauter Children's story takes place in Fayetteville, West Virginia, on Christmas Eve in 1945. George and Jenny Sauter are the parents, and on that night, nine of the ten children went to sleep. One of them was much older, and he was away in the army. So a fire broke out at 1 a.m., and the parents and four children escaped, but five others were never seen again. And those five were Maurice, age 14, Martha, age 12, Louis, age 9, Jenny, age 8, and Betty, age 5. So George obviously tried to break back in when he realized that five of the children were still in the house. But he couldn't see anything because the fire was so bad, and he actually sliced his arm on a window pretty bad trying to get in and trying to see. Uh, The children's bedrooms were on either side of the staircase, and the staircase was completely engulfed in flames, so it was kind of like splitting the house down the middle. Uh, So he decided, obviously, he's going to try to break in and try to help. And so he had always had a ladder propped up on the outside of his house, so he went over to grab it, but when he went over there, he realized that it was not there, and he had not moved it. He then had the thought, okay, let me try to drive my coal truck, because he owned his own construction company, and he owned two coal trucks. He said, let me try to drive one of my coal trucks up to the window, get on top of the coal truck, and then boost myself in and try to save them that way. Well, when he went over, both of the coal trucks were not working and he could not get them to start when the previous day they had worked and had started. So then he's running out of ideas ideas here. And the last idea that he has is he's deciding he's going to try to scoop water from a rain bale. But the water was frozen solid. And this is understandable because it's Christmas. It's December. So in West Virginia, it does get cold and they do get snow. So this makes sense as to why the water could be frozen. So one of the daughters who did escape, Marion, she ran to the neighbors to call for the fire department, but she never got a response. And so a neighbor at a nearby tavern also made a call, and they still got no response as well. So finally, that neighbor was just fed up and just drove into town to get the firefighters. But it had been too late, because by the time that the firefighters arrived, it was 8 a.m., and the home was just a pile of ash. And this just blows my mind, because... Think about that. The fire started at 1 a.m. and the firefighters didn't arrive until 8 a.m. Nowadays, when we call firefighters, when we call 911, we expect them to respond in like five minutes. They responded in seven hours. So, you know, maybe if they would have arrived sooner, maybe they could have saved the house. Who knows? But 
you know, at this point we'll never know because that didn't happen. So obviously now they're searching the fire and, well, what's left of the house, which is just the pile of ash, for remains because they never saw those children escape. So George and Jenny are just assuming that their five children perished in the fire. But Chief Morris searched and said that there were no uh, bones, there were no remnants, nothing. And he said that the fire, that the flames in the fire were not hot enough to actually cremate the bones. So this was kind of confusing because nobody saw them escape the house. So then where are these children? And if they had perished, where are their remains? So state police came in and they did their version of an investigation. And they said that the fire happened due to faulty wiring. So just keep that in mind. This will come back later on. So just remember that. Um, after this, George was obviously and Jenny were very upset and grieving. So George actually covered the basement in five feet of dirt as like a memorial. And then death certificates were issued, but we were not so sure on that. Okay, so now that we know the basic of the story, let's get a little backstory on George the father. So George was born in Tula, Sardinia in 1895, and I hope I said that right. And he immigrated to the United States in 1908 at age 13. Now, his older brother did accompany him, but he left him alone very shortly. So George was very young and just left alone to, to try to make it here in the United States, which I'm sure was probably very scary and very stressful. George then found work on the Pennsylvania railroads, and he was carrying water and supplies to laborers. He then moved to Smithers, West Virginia, and he worked as a driver. And after this, he had eventually created and owned his own trucking company, and they dealt with things like coal and dirt and construction, things like that. He then met Jenny in a store, and she was also an Italian immigrant, and then they got married and obviously had this large family. And everybody in the community locally said that they were just a great middle-class family. Okay, so now that we know the backstory on that, let's get into the faulty wiring thing because it, it, it's very interesting. So these are some events that happened in the months leading up to the fire on Christmas Eve. So first, a stranger appeared months prior in the fall asking about hauling work. And when George told him that he didn't have anything like available to offer him, the guy weirdly went to the back of the house and pointed at two fuse boxes and said that this would cause a fire someday. But however, George had just had these fuse boxes checked by a local power company a week prior, and they had said that everything was perfectly fine. So that's, that's the first weird thing. The second weird thing is a man showed up at their house and was trying to sell George life insurance. And in quote, this is what he said to him whenever George said that he did not need the life insurance. Your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed. Okay, so I don't know about you, but I think that that's a little bit aggressive for someone just saying kindly, I don't want to buy life insurance. That seems like a threat to me. That, that's just my opinion. So this is where things get a little interesting too differently. So George was an Italian immigrant and in Fayetteville at the time there was a strong Italian community. Well, George was very outspoken about how he did not like Mussolini. And I guess that there were a lot of issues with people disliking him for saying these comments. And so this is something that, you know, I, I don't know how prevalent it could be in this, in this case, but it does seem 
worth noting that, you know, he did have, you know, a little bit of a disagreement with a lot of the Italian community in Fayetteville. And lastly, one more thing that was was a little bit odd is the younger kids noticed that there was a man parked along U.S. Highway 21, and he was watching them get off uh, the bus coming home from school um, uh, pretty close to around that Christmas time. So let's break down kind of the night of the fire and what was going on and what happened. So at 12.30, the family finished opening presents, and the telephone rang. And it was very odd because when the mother, Jenny, picked up the phone, all she heard was laughter and glasses clinking on the other end of the line. So she hung up and just was like, whatever. And she noticed that everybody had then gone to bed. And she noticed that all the lights were still on. The curtains were open and the front door was locked. And she thought this was odd. But Marion, who is the 17-year-old, she was asleep on the couch. So she didn't think anything of it and just shut everything down and went up to bed. Well, after she was in bed, she was woken up to a sharp, loud bang on the roof. She didn't think anything of it, and then she just went right back to sleep. Well, after she had fallen asleep again, she was then obviously awoken by the smoke. And so, Jenny, she was very confused about this whole situation. Now, this, this, is, this is a couple weeks after the fire. So, she was very confused on how there were no bones. And so she was doing experiments of her own where she was trying to burn like pork bones and chicken bones and animal bones to see how they react. Um, And so the crematorium had told her that bones remained after two hours of burning at 2,000 degrees and her home was destroyed in 45 minutes. So when you hear that, you think to yourself, there is possibly no way that there were no bones. If those children were in that house, there would be bones because even Chief Morris had said that the fire wasn't even hot enough to burn the bones. And then we're hearing here that they the fire needs to burn at that level for two hours and the home was destroyed in 45 minutes. So that's just not adding up. Well, then they found out that their telephone lines had to appear to be cut. And this goes against that faulty wiring thing that I told you to remember uh, a little bit ago. Uh, Because the lights were working downstairs while the fire was going on. But yet the phone lines were cut. So this this seems to be somebody went and cut the phone lines. This is not faulty wiring. And a witness said that they had actually seen a man taking a block and tackle. And this was used to remove car engines to George's two trucks. Which would then explain why when he went to get in the truck and started that it didn't work. But yet it had worked previously the prior day and this is really crazy I think this is one of the craziest things they found a rubber object in the yard and it ended up being a napalm pineapple bomb which was used in warfare and this is what Jenny then was thinking when they found this that must have been the thing that they heard thud on the roof so really you don't know what caused this fire because there's so many different things and there's so many eyewitnesses saying different things that you have no idea um, what it could have been. So now let's talk about the sightings, okay, because they were in denial and a lot of people were in denial that the children had perished in the fire, which is understandable because no bones were found. So then this is where people, they were trying to see if people were seeing the children. And so here's some examples of sightings. 
So a woman had claimed to see the children peering from a car during the fire. So while that fire was still happening, some lady said that she saw them peering out of the car. Don't know if that's true. Don't know if it's not. These are all just, you know, hearsay from individuals. Another one was 50 miles west. The children were seen because a woman served them breakfast. Um, I don't know if this is true as well. This was a couple days after, so they could have easily made it 50 miles. Um, but who knows? This is the most interesting one to me, and I think that this has the best chance of being true in my opinion. So a woman in, a woman in Charleston at a hotel saw four or five children accompanied by two women and two men, and the men and women were Italian. And the woman said that they were registering at midnight for a room with a couple of beds, a bigger room. And she said that she tried talking to the children, but as soon as she did, the men and the women became super hostile and were yelling at her to not speak to them. And then one of the men turned around to the others and the children and yelled in Italian and everything stopped. And they left super early that next morning. So I think this is, this is very interesting um, because this kind of goes back to that thing where George was really outspoken about Mussolini and the Italian community and everybody hated him for that. So are these them getting revenge on him? You know, I, it, it could be a case. I don't know. So after all of this, George and Jenny, they tried to get help from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, but Edgar Hoover had said that he couldn't help. Um, but he said that he would have his agents assist local authorities, but they needed to uh, want the help. And the local authorities actually declined the help, which was, I thought was very interesting because at this point, they don't really have any strong leads, so you would think that they would want as much help as they could get. But in this case, they declined the offer. So then George and Jenny hired a private investigator, and this man was named C.C. Tinsley. And so C.C. Tinsley, he found an insurance salesman who threatened the uh, family. And the member I told you earlier, the guy who came and, and said that your kids are going to die in a fire and all of that, well, he was a member of the uh, colonel's jury, and he deemed the fire accidental. So that's just very interesting to me that this insurance salesman is deeming the fire an accident, but yet a couple months prior, he was there trying to sell him fire insurance and telling them if they didn't buy it that they were going to die and their home was going to go up in a fire. So I don't know. That's odd. Is this like a thing like, hey, you should have bought the fire insurance. I started the fire. Like, now you learn. I don't know, but it's very interesting. The private investigator also heard a story from a minister that F.J. Morris, the uh, fire chief, that he found a heart in the ashes and hid it in a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. So obviously when George and Jenny heard this, they were furious and they wanted him to show where he had buried it and dig it up and get it tested. So when they checked it, it turns out that it had only had been uh, beef liver and it actually wasn't even ever touched by the fire. And they found out that the chief had buried this because he wanted to give the family closure. Um, and he actually buried it in the rubble. So it was, this was well after the ashes, like, you know, the fire was done. So in the next few years, this is where things kind of get, you know, maybe you think that there's, there's headway being made and then it just falls through. So the first thing is that George thought he saw Betty in a newspaper photo of school children in New York City. And he was so convinced that he drove to Manhattan to search for the child in the photo. And when he found the parents, those parents refused to speak to him, which is understandable because it most likely was not his daughter. 
So they then called in a DC pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter to come go where the um, remains of the house were and excavate through and see if they could find anything. And he ended up finding several shards of vertebrae, but no evidence um, exposed to the fire. So it means that basically the the, the vertebrae had never been exposed to the fire, so it was it was very odd. Um, but I took a photo, and I wanted to read this. So basically it says here that this was the report on the bones that they had found. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should be about 22, since the centra, which formerly fuse at 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy, the oldest missing solder child. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 maturation. So basically what they're saying about these vertebrae bones is that it's possible, but it's also not possible. So then again, this really doesn't give George and Jenny any closure or any kind of clues as to what happened. And these bones were most likely in the dirt when George, like that George used to fill the basement for the memorial as well. So that was noted um, as well. So the Smithsonian eventually declared this case hopeless and unsolved. So this is when George and Jenny decided to put a billboard on Route 16. And on the billboard, it had photos of the missing children, and it said that there was a $5,000 reward for anyone that had info. Well, then eventually, they actually annied that up to $10,000 because they were that desperate for info. So they got some info, but nothing really ever led to anything again. Um, A letter arrived from a convent in St. Louis saying that Martha was there. There was a tip from Texas about a conversation overheard where somebody was talking about a long-ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia that ended in death. And then 20 years later, now this is what's crazy to me. This just blows my mind. 20 years later, Jenny found a letter in the mail from Kentucky with no return address. And there was a photo inside with a cryptic note. And it says, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, a little boys, A90132 or 35. That was written on the back of the photo. And this looked exactly like Louis. I mean, at the time, Louis. At the time of the fire, he was nine years old. So I, it obviously, you know, this is a grown man. So it's obviously hard to compare. But they said that the facial features, he had a strong nose, the black curly hair, the, like the eyebrows, like everything was saying, you know, this is him. So the family, they sent a private detective to Kentucky to find him, and they never heard from that private, uh, from that private detective ever again, which I just think is, is very crazy. So they then put the photo that they had gotten sent of the updated version of uh, him on a billboard. So this is where things get a little bit sad. George died in 1968, never knowing what happened to his children. And Jenny, she, when she was living alone, She then put fence up around the property, and she kept adding rooms to try to put as much space between her and the outside world as possible. And actually, Jenny, since the fire started, she had only worn black clothes, and she did so until she died in 1989. The billboard had finally came down, and the children and the grandchildren continued to search, but always were met with dead ends. 
The last surviving child was Sylvia, and she was the youngest of the Sauter children, and she died in 2021 at 79 years old. And they said that even she occasionally kept trying to find out what happened to her siblings. So that is the case of the Sauter children. Um, it's definitely, there's so many different things. I, like, when you look it up on the internet, so many people have different opinions on what happened, and there's so much evidence that kind of backs up all of that, but at the end of the day, there were no remains found in the fire, and the fire was not warm enough to, to cremate those remains, so you almost have to think that they were either taken before the fire got really bad out of the house, or that they escaped out of the house and were then taken, who knows, but it's definitely a super interesting story. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you come back and listen to next week's episode, which comes out on Mondays, because remember, new episodes are out every Monday. And next week, we have a very interesting case, um, and I'll just give you a tiny preview. It has to do with a box. That's all I can say. Remember to follow us on Instagram at the unknown underscore a podcast. And also we are on Twitter at the unknown a pod. Um, and in the bios of both of those, there's a link tree that links you to the social medias as well as all of the different platforms that you can listen to the podcast. Well, thank you for listening. This has been another episode of The Unknown. I'm your host, Peyton Schaefer. And until next time, thank you. Thank you.